I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. Even though we looked together at verses 7 through 12 last week, I would like us to revisit them again this morning. We considered how Paul took a detour on his way to Jerusalem and ended up in the city of Troas. What began as a detour turned into a disaster as a young man, Eutychus, fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. However, Paul fell upon him, brought the boy back to life, and what we saw in that episode was that for the Christian, tragedy never has the final word. This episode, this narrative about Eutychus occurred within a particular setting, a worship service. This passage is the earliest description we have in Scripture of Christians gathering together for worship on a Sunday. Uh, it will, therefore, benefit us to consider what this passage also has to teach us in regards to our gathering together as a church. Acts chapter 20, we'll read verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. This is God's word. I've pointed out before that the information we have in the New Testament about what the early church did when they gathered together is descriptive. What I mean by that is we receive snapshots, images of how things looked. However, there's nothing in the New Testament that prescribes what we are to do when we gather. There is no prescription. There's no checklist. There's no order of service. Maybe that surprises you. Remember that in his letters, Paul is writing to churches that are already established. They are already meeting together. They've already been instructed as far as, as how to do so. Paul in his letters and his epistles is simply correcting problems that have arisen in his absence. Or he is encouraging them to continue with certain practices of which they are already aware now, when it comes to the book of Acts, Luke, the writer, is not concerned with laying out for his readers what an early church service looked like. Luke is concerned with showing how the gospel spread after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since Luke is not primarily interested in giving us information about church gatherings, we only receive such information indirectly as is the case with our present passage in Acts chapter 20. When it comes to church services, the New Testament 
is descriptive, not prescriptive. Though our text does not give us a prescription for what to do, it does give us a description of what the believers in Troas did when they gathered. And from this description, we learn what we should be doing and hopefully are doing, and perhaps what we should not be doing. I think we're all aware that every church accommodates traditions in their worship services. And there's nothing wrong with traditions per se. But we need to be aware of two things. First, traditions do not carry the same weight as Scripture. If a tradition is not supported by God's Word, we as a church are not required to observe it. Now, this does not automatically mean that we throw it out. Rather, we, we hold it loosely. Secondly, and this flows out of the first point, flows out of the fact that traditions do not carry the same way to Scripture. Secondly, we must be willing to discard traditions if we discover they are contrary to God's Word. Things like the time we start our service, how many songs we sing, where we put the, the congregational prayer in the service. These are traditions that aren't addressed by the Bible. They don't contradict the Word, nor are they required by it. So we should be willing to tweak them or modify them or even change them if need be. But if we discover a tradition we tightly hold flatly contradicts God's word, it doesn't matter how long we've done it. It doesn't matter how dear to us it might be. It doesn't matter if people get upset if we cease to observe it. A tradition that is contrary to Scripture is prohibited in church practice. As we'll see, God's Word actually gives us a lot of space for a wide variety of expressions and even practices within the worship gathering. So what we'll look at today is four questions whose answers will guide us or even recalibrate us, whatever the case may be. Four questions whose answers will guide us, and we will answer four questions based on the gathering together of the believers in Troas in Acts chapter 20. What are those four questions? First of all, who meets together? Secondly, when do we meet? Thirdly, where do we meet? And finally, what do we do when we meet? Why does answering these questions matter? Does it matter? It does. And the reason is because we want to conform our times of worship to the pattern of Scripture. It is only in this way that we will experience the abundance of life and love that God pours out on His people when we are walking according to His Word and according to His Spirit. The answers to these questions, they do matter. So first of all, who meets together? Who meets together? Verse 7, Acts chapter 20 reads, On the first day of the week, 
when we were gathered together. The church is first and foremost a gathering of believers. Luke is now with the Apostle Paul. He writes, when we gather together. The we is the brothers and sisters in Troas, those in the city who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a little more than 20 years after the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. There are no denominations at this point in church history. Nothing has yet occurred to cause the, the church in Troas to split and form a rival church called the Second Church of Troas. Paul describes this oneness, this unity in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Using the picture of the human body, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to describe how every Christian has a specific and crucial role to play as a body part in the body. Jesus is the head. He gives the instructions. And the body follows. A point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 is that Jesus Christ cannot be divided. And since Jesus cannot be divided, the members of the body cannot be divided. They are one body. When we divide from our brothers and sisters, we are fighting against what the Lord has already established and already declared a reality. We are, we are amputating limbs. Keep in mind, when the New Testament talks about the church, it never means a place. We tend to call the building where we gather a church. We say things like, I'm going to church. This would be nonsensical to a Christian in the first century. The New Testament knows nothing about the church as a structure or a place. The church is always the people of God. When we come together for worship, we are the gathered church. When we go our separate ways, we are the scattered church. We are still the church, regardless of where we are. The church is people, but not just any people. Again, our gatherings are for Christians. A church service, a service is for, for mutual edification. It is for worshiping the God who redeemed us. We corporally offer praise and thanksgiving back to the one who bought us with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. How can someone who has not experienced redemption, who has not experienced new life, who has not tasted of the glory to come, even fit in with those who have? How can, how can I consistently be ministered to by someone who is not even a spiritual brother or sister? What fellowship does light have with darkness? Now in saying this, it does not mean that we are closed off to non-Christians visiting. They are certainly welcome. You're aware of that. You know that. For someone who 
does not know Jesus personally, walking in here on a Sunday morning should not be awkward for them. They should sense our love for them. They should sense the presence of God around them because we welcome God's presence in our midst. Any uncomfortable feeling a non-Christian has among us should only be conviction. Conviction that they are not in relationship with the one we are singing about, praying to, and hearing from. Non-Christians are certainly welcome. But the primary purpose of our gathering together is not to evangelize others. It is to edify one another. We read last week in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, that Paul was exhorting the churches during his visits to them. He was not evangelizing them. They were already Christians. Think about that. He was encouraging them to grow spiritually, to become more like Jesus. He was building them up. We should primarily focus our evangelism outside of the walls of this building. You should be evangelizing all week long. I should be evangelizing all week long, wherever we are. Now, a person will get evangelized if he or she attends a service here. That's going to happen. The gospel is preached in our gatherings. Just keep in mind that believers gather primarily for edification, not evangelism. This is what we see in the New Testament. There is no question whether Christians will gather together. It's assumed by God's word. When we gather together. Verse 7. Ideally, you should not be attending worship service because you feel obligated to do so. You should be here because you desire to be here. A true Christian is attracted to other Christians like a magnet is attracted to metal. You long for, thirst for, hunger for the fellowship and the encouragement offered by getting together with other believers. We're instructed by God's word to meet together. We desire to fellowship regularly with other Christians. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, bring these ideas together. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who meets together? Christians meet together. When do we meet? Secondly, when do we meet? Again, verse 7 reads, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together. The obvious phrase here, in verse 7, that offers us the beginning of an answer to the question, when do we meet, is the first day of the week. You're all aware that the first day of the week is Sunday. Therefore, the seventh day of the week is Saturday. Saturday was and still is the Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. The seven-day week cycle and the Sabbath rest were established way back in Genesis 1 and 2. 
They are built into the very fabric of creation. Now, you will occasionally hear someone teach that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. And this is partly derived from this verse. Yet, this verse, verse 7, does not say Sunday is a new or different Sabbath day. In fact, scour the entire New Testament. You will not find any place where the Sabbath was ever changed from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath day instituted at creation has not changed. It was specifically given to Israel. The Hebrew people were required to keep the Sabbath under the Old Testament. Jesus, as a Jewish man who perfectly kept the whole law, observed the Sabbath. However, the New Testament is clear that keeping Saturday as a day of rest is not required for the Christian. Whether you rest on a Saturday or not is a matter of personal conviction. Listen to Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. Paul writes, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. I don't want to get too far into how the principle of the Sabbath applies to the Christian. That's not the message this morning. I just want to make the point that this text that we're looking at does not teach the early Christians met on Sunday because they believed it was the new Sabbath day. That is not what it's teaching here. In fact, all of the earliest Christians were Jewish. Most of them would have continued to go to synagogue on Saturday. The Jewish day starts at sundown and ends at sundown. It's different than how we mark days. For this reason, many of the earliest Jewish believers probably attended synagogue on Saturday and then met together for Christian fellowship after sundown on what we would call Saturday, but this meant for them it was Sunday when they met what we call Saturday evening. Remember the Jewish day ends at sunset, the new day begins at that point as well. So this going to synagogue on Saturday during the day and then meeting together as Christian brethren on Saturday evening or night would have set an early precedent for Sunday worship. Eventually, as more Gentiles came into the church, a fewer percentage of believers were concerned with attending synagogue. Sunday was another work day for Jews and Gentiles. Romans, they measure days like we do. A day runs from midnight to midnight. This gathering in our text occurred Sunday evening, after the work day was complete. So, why do we read these believers in Troas gathered on the first day? Fact is, the Bible does not directly tell us the reason. However, there are a few things that clue us in 
as to the significance of the first day. Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Because of this, early Christians considered Sunday the first day of the new creation. Secondly, the Holy Spirit fell upon the first disciples in Jerusalem on a Sunday. Pentecost in A.D. 33 fell on a Sunday. It doesn't always fall on a Sunday, but it did that year. Sunday was the birthday of the church. Thirdly, the Apostle John refers to the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. John does not explain this. Presumably, those reading what John wrote were already familiar with the meaning of the Lord's Day, and John knew that they knew. It's generally accepted that John was referring to Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and the day Christians were known to gather upon. The last reference to a first day meeting is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. This is a passage I've read a couple of times recently. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Paul is encouraging making an offering to famine relief in Jerusalem. He's instructing the Christians in Corinth to do so on Sunday, on the first day of the week. Now, we tend to assume in reading that passage that this meant they are to make an offering when they gathered for worship. But it doesn't say that. It could just be that Paul is encouraging each person to set money aside on Sunday. Why? It's the beginning of the week. It's before any other expenses have been incurred. A good time to set money aside. It's also easier to save if you have a set day in mind to do so. This verse that I just read, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, does not necessarily mean that this putting aside of money was done in the worship gathering. All it says was to do it on the first day of the week. Out of the four things I just mentioned, that place significance on the first day in Scripture, none of them are direct instructions for believers to meet on Sunday. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday is the strongest case for doing so. And by the end of the first century, that is almost 50 years after the writing of Acts, a document called the Epistle of Barnabas contains this. Wherefore also we keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. So we know from that document and from others, it was an established practice by at least 100 A.D. that believers gathered on Sundays. What we know for sure from our text is that the believers in Troas gathered on Sunday evening when Paul was in their city which implies this was a regular practice. We know that by the end of the first century, according to historical records, that Christians met for worship on Sundays. With no clear biblical command to do so, but 
with a lot of evidence that early Christians did so, what are we to do with this idea of meeting on Sunday? Well, first of all, let me say, the day that we gather is not nearly as important to God as the importance that we often lay upon it. Meetings on certain days at certain times are often according to preference and to scheduling. It does not appear, biblically speaking, as if the Lord is as concerned about when we meet as that we do meet regularly. In fact, because we are on a seven-day cycle, and that cycle is built into the very fabric of creation, meeting at least once a week is a good baseline for regular gathering according to scriptural principles. Now, we read back in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, about the earliest believers. That verse says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That tells us the very first Christians met more than once a week, in fact, day by day. And no day is specified. Remember, we're dealing with principles here, not specific instructions. The first principle we should observe about when to meet is this. We should gather regularly for worship. We should gather regularly for worship. Regularly being at least once a week. First principle. The second principle, and of lesser importance, is Sunday was a significant and preferred day of gathering for the early church. However, in saying that, I must point out, again, there is no direct biblical evidence that Sunday worship is required. Maybe that surprises you. In our culture, Sunday is the preferred day of Christian fellowship and the preferred day of rest for many. Most businesses are still closed on Sunday. And I see no reason for us not to meet on Sunday morning. It's the most convenient and preferred time for the majority of us. But I would never fault a congregation for choosing to meet on a Saturday evening or a Wednesday evening or any other time during the week, even if it were their only weekly gathering. Scripture is not concerned about when we gather, but that we do gather regularly, which I believe means at least once a week. So much for when do we meet. How about where do we meet? Where do we meet? Look with me at verse 8, Acts chapter 20. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were gathered together. This church in, in Troas on this occasion met in a third-story room. We know it was a large room because it accompanied the Christians of Troas. Also, the room, as we read, was lit by many lamps. A small room would not need many lamps, just a few. We saw with the earliest Christians in Jerusalem that they met in homes. I read back in Acts 2.46, they met from house to house. 
There were no church buildings. There were synagogues where the Jews met, but no structures that were designated exclusively for Christians to meet within. They didn't exist. People met in homes because they served as places to gather out of the weather. Made sense. Though most houses were small, one-room dwellings, believers with means would open up their larger homes for fellowship gatherings. Recall, back in Acts chapter 12, how the church prayed for Peter when he was imprisoned by Herod. After he escaped with the help of the angel, we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that Peter went to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. This was a large home. It employed at least one servant. Her name was Rhoda. She was the one who opened the door for Peter. Gathering in homes was was something that offered protection from those who would persecute Christians if they knew exactly where they were meeting. Persecution was not only an issue in Jerusalem in the earliest days of the church, but it continued to be an issue across the Roman Empire on and off up until the 4th century. The earliest church buildings, in fact, did not appear appear until the early 3rd century. We're talking about the, the early 200s. There is no prescription for where to meet in the New Testament. If anything, we read repeatedly, especially in the epistles, about the churches meeting in homes. Romans 16, 19. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Does this imply the ideal place to meet is someone's house? No. No. This simply demonstrates that the ideal place to meet is anywhere Christians choose to gather. When the air went out, where did we gather? Under the pavilion. Was our church service any less, any less significant than it would have been if we had met in here? No. The ideal place to meet is anywhere Christians choose to gather. Realistically, The place of meeting should be able to accommodate the number of people in your fellowship. We are abundantly blessed in this nation to have the freedom and the means to have erected so many structures used exclusively for worship services. The danger, of course, with that is that we can easily lose sight of what the church is. We don't go to church. We are the church. So the principle for where to meet is simple. Your place of meeting for worship should accommodate the size of your congregation. Now, this does not mean that if a church grows, it it has to build a, a larger facility. It might mean that if a church grows, it sends a group out to start another fellowship. But simply put, the place should accommodate the people. Where do we meet? Where we can be accommodated. Final question. What do we do when we meet? What do we do when we meet? There are several activities mentioned in our passage that give us direction as to our gathering together. 
Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do what we do when we gather together for a church service? Why do we do what we do? In verse 7, we read, we were gathered together to break bread. And then down in verse 11, Paul had gone back up, that is after raising Eutychus from the dead, and had broken the bread and eaten. So this phrase, break bread, is obviously important. We found it back in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 as well. They were breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals together. Breaking bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, these words are familiar to you. He describes the practice of, of breaking bread like this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and broke it. And he took the cup also after supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Taking the Lord's Supper, therefore, from what we see in Scripture, was done every time believers gathered for worship. But it was not only the symbolic bread and wine. In the early church, the Lord's Supper was combined with a whole meal called the Love Feast. Reference for that is Jude, chapter 1, verse 12. The Love Feast. And this is why we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, about breaking bread and taking meals together. And following the example of the nation of Israel and the five annual feasts that are commanded in the law of Moses, the early church, they incorporated a meal into their fellowship, a potluck. And within this meal, or at its conclusion, was an observance of the Lord's Supper. We also see in verse 7 that Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. This word translated talking means there was dialogue. Think a small group or a Bible study setting. Paul was teaching. He was answering questions. He was probably receiving comments. That would be the talking that he was doing. And then we have the message. He prolonged his message until midnight. That's what we would call a sermon. It lasted for hours. Don't worry, mine won't this morning. It lasted for hours because Paul was leaving the next day. This is consistent with what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul instructs Timothy with these words. Until I come... Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's 1 Timothy 4.13. Like what took place in the synagogues, the Old Testament was read in Christian worship services. Also, letters from Paul and other apostles would have been read and circulated among the various churches. Today, we incorporate Old Testament and New Testament readings in our services based on these practices. Ever wonder why we do what we do? I'm giving you the reasons. Out of the scripture readings, 
comes the message or the sermon. And what's the purpose of the message? Well, it's as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. The purpose is to exhort and to teach. Preaching is another word for exhorting. So, a message in a worship service is a combination of bringing out the sense of the text, that is, explaining, teaching, and exhorting the hearers to live based on the teaching. That's the preaching. So we have explaining or teaching together with exhorting or preaching. And then you have the substance of your message or your sermon. We know from other New Testament passages, other elements that also took place when Christians gathered together. These included prayer. We saw that back in Acts chapter 4, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was also singing songs of praise. And this is a practice that was carried over from the example of Israel. Ephesians 5.19 instructs Christians to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Ever wonder why we sing during a church service? There you go, Ephesians 5.19. In summing up what we do when we meet, we've observed three categories. First, we're instructed from the Word of God with preaching and teaching. This, at least since the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, is the culmination of the service. That's why the, the message, the sermon, is always towards the end of the service. Secondly, we observe the Lord's Supper. Some churches do this every week. Some churches like us do this once a month. Some churches... Do this quarterly. It does appear that the early church observed the Lord's Supper every time they met together. But they also ate every time they met. However, and having said that, it's probably not wise to lay down a hard and fast rule about the frequency of doing so. What is crucial is that the Lord's Supper is observed regularly. And thirdly, that third component of a worship service, what is implied by the Christians gathering together is two of the practices that were common to worship services and mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. That is singing and prayer. Singing and prayer. So though we have no order of service outlined in the scriptures, there are these three components offered as the standard for every Christian congregation, a message, singing and prayer, and the Lord's Supper. These are going to look different from church to church. They're going to look different from denomination to denomination, even from culture to culture. But a biblical church will, in some form or fashion, consistently model all three of these. Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it reads, And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they, 
that's the believers, kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Our worship services mean nothing if they are not preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Everything that we observe, the message, the songs, the prayers, the Lord's Supper, the dialogue, the testimonies, everything we observe are designed to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the reason we meet. He is the focus of our time together. He is the goal of our gathering. Is Jesus Christ the focus of your life and love? I wonder why some people waste their time in a church building week after week. I say waste their time because that's what it is if you were not here to encounter the Lord Jesus. To sit in a church service week after week and not be moved either to love God or moved to repentance is spiritually a dangerous place to be. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Your motivation the compulsion for gathering with brothers and sisters, the drive that compels you should be Jesus Christ. What He has done for you. What He has done for us. And what is that? Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but each of us failed to. Jesus went to the cross and was punished for the sins that you and I committed. Jesus rose from the dead, his sacrifice accepted by God so that you and I may be justified, that is declared not guilty in the court of heaven. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith will be forgiven of their disobedience and of their rebellion against a loving and a holy God. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith will be delivered from eternal separation from the love of God. Anyone who calls upon his name will be granted new life. And it is only through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit who is given to every Christian, only through the transforming power of the Spirit that you and I can change. Only through His power that we can live lives pleasing to God. Only through His power that we can experience the richness of fellowship here and now and culminating in the eternal presence of God. Every time we gather together, it should be a foretaste of heaven. It should whet our appetite for seeing Jesus face to face because we're seeing him with the eyes of our heart together right now. Why are you here? Why are you here? If you did not come into this gathering with your focus upon Jesus this morning, may you know for certain that he is the reason we gather together.
And may you know when you leave this place, when you leave this gathering, may you be assured that knowing him, knowing the Lord Jesus is the only goal that's worth pursuing. He's why we gather together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a text like this this morning that reminds us, that instructs us, that once again points us toward the Lord Jesus and how he is expressed in and through our gathering together. Lord, may we not waste these moments. May we not take them for granted. And may we root our times of fellowship together in your word so that they may point us all toward Jesus as we wait in expectation upon him. We pray this in his name.